Hello and welcome to Out of Office. My name's Johnny Caldor and this is a podcast where I get to take walks with interesting people in media and find out what makes them tick. This is episode nine, which is the first of another two-parter, this time with Matt Kelly, the founder of The New European. In this first episode, we talk about Matt's earlier days as a regional newspaper journalist, his views on the news media in general, his time at Archant, and the birth of the new European. And in the next episode, number 10, he takes us through how he secured the investment to buy his creation, the new European, from Archant, and how he's now building the business pretty much from scratch, also with a little help from Team Pugpig, of course. It was a really interesting chat as we walk through Highbury Fields, on a typical British summer's day, alternating from beautiful sunshine to torrential rainstorm from one minute to the next. But at least it was warm. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. See you on the other side. So, okay, well, let's talk about, well, where should we start? Goodness me. Because we can talk about anything here. I definitely want to talk about the new European at some point. Yeah. But, um... It'd be kind of fun to start with some of the early days, no? Yeah. I mean, where, when you got into media, because you've yeah. done everything. I ha- do you know what? Um, without, I mean, I sort of sound a bit kind of gentrified myself now, but I, I have done a lot. I was thinking about, yeah. you know, I started, I didn't go to university. Um, I sort of crashed out having bombed up my uh, A-levels and got a job as a, a kind of cub reporter on a tiny little newspaper called the Formby Times. Right. Which was the best thing possible. You know, so I spent four years on, in lo- you know, in really local newspapers. Yeah. Knocking on doors, understanding the community really well, but just loved it. Loved that, you know, you were the heart of stuff. Yes. Had an office in the middle of Formby. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I look back now and I... We used to work so hard that we'd sleep on the floor sometimes. You know, we'd get pissed and then come back to the office write up a feature, kip on the floor, wake up the next morning, and just, you know, it was just so much fun. And what sort of journalism was this? Because people don't normally credit local newspapers with the most exciting journalism. What were you, well, what were you writing so about? Well, so it probably wasn't looking back, but it felt, it felt exciting. Yeah. But, um, and do you know what? I mean, I think it was... I remember going to theatre productions of the local, the local play and, uh, you know, doing a review of a play and you felt like you were at La Scala or something like this, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, it might yeah. as well have been, uh, you know, an enormous production. I remember going to one that the Formby, the local Formby Theatre had put on called The Lifeboat because Formby was the site of the first ever lifeboat in the world, right? That's where lifeboats were oh. kind of invented. So anyway, they did this lifeboat thing and it was just awful. <laughs> and uh, I wrote, went back to the office and wrote my review and slated it, you know, I said, I think the intro was something like, you know, Formby Theatre Productions last night sank the lifeboat and spectacular <laughs> stuff, you know, and all of this. Yeah. Very proud of myself. Yeah. And uh, the paper came out two days later and this glowing review appeared under my name. Oh, God. <laughs> I came back in, into the office and there was four of us, you know, it was a, a news editor, the editor and two reporters, yeah. which I was one. And I came in. I mean, I look back now and just cringe. Uh, who did that to my copy? <laughs> he did a Giles Corrin. Oh, honestly, you know, I was like this proto Giles Corrin, aged, you know, 17. And uh, I remember the uh, news editor, a woman called Jan Nethercott, who's still a friend, 
sort of basically looking at me and saying, do you, do, have you got a fucking clue what we do here? You know, do you think you, <laughs> your ego, is going to ruin the lives of 20 people who live in the streets around us? Wow. Because yeah. you're so big-headed and full of yourself that you want to slate their wow. months of work. Yeah, good point. And it was a great point, and I shut up very quickly. <laughs> but it was also, I guess, a moment where you realise that newspapers are not everything they seem to be. Yep. Journalism is not everything it purports to be. You know, people talk about the truth, you know, or the best version of the truth and all of this business. And yes. it's, really, it's your version of the truth. And it's the version of the truth that suits you at the time. And, and, your, and, and it, your readers, I guess. And your readers and your, yeah. and your budget, you know. Yeah. Um, and that can come back to, I think, haunt people in quite serious ways. If you fast forward to 2016, I spent a lot of time on the Daily Mirror and I'd left by then. But obviously, during the um, referendum campaigning, the right-wing press were like on message completely. Mm -hmm. You know, the Mail and the Telegraph, they were completely ruthless about why we should leave uh, Europe. But the kind of papers that would have been more naturally remain focused, like the Mirror and the Guardian, they, they were sort of vacillating wildly because, in the Guardian's case, I think because of this strange, <coughs> excuse me, this strange um, belief that liberal media should be broad and all-encompassing and should go to pains to show the other side, you know. Yeah, yeah. But in the Mirror's case, I know why. They were terrified that they'd lose circulation because half of their readers were Brexit. The Mirror, that, uh, that could have made a difference you know, to a couple of hundred thousand votes. Yeah. Really was in fear of its own audience. And I think the minute you start to double guess and be scared of your readership, yeah. you kind of lose, you lose purpose. And uh, the mirror of the old days had no issue uh, telling its readers that they were wrong. You know, they had, um, they had real strong campaigns about capital punishment when most of the country was very much pro yep. capital punishment. Yeah. The mirror said it was wrong. Uh, same about the Iraq war. You know, they were very, very vehement about the war in Iraq being a terrible idea. Right. But when it came to Brexit, which was probably the one issue where they could have swung things, uh, they bottled it. Yeah. And I, I do understand why, because, you know, <clears throat> I think they'd have lost circulation. And these days, newspaper editors of tabloids cannot afford to lose circulation. You know, you get fired for that now. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's happening naturally anyway, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so. exactly. So that's where I think a strong tabloid press, or a, certainly a strong press that's not afraid of, of the consequences of saying what it feels is the right thing to say, is really important, but it's becoming yeah. quite a rare thing. Yeah. Interesting that the Sunday Times and the Times took opposite stances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they did, and... Um, I think possibly that's because the Times is probably a paper that thinks for itself still. Um, and, you know, you think about James Harding at the Times falling out with Murdoch to the point where I think, that, you know, him and Murdoch cease to become compatible. Uh, and it's because James is a proper journalist and does what he wants to do and bugger the consequences, you know. But you get a proprietor who doesn't always you know, truck with that. Yes. Would you like a coffee? Oh, a coffee, yeah, yeah. yeah let's get a coffee.
Okay, good. So, got our coffee. Thank you for that. You're welcome. It'd be good if you could tell mm. us the story of the New European. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people in, know it, but you know, well, actually, surprisingly, few people know it, which um, I'm hoping will change when we put some marketing money behind the title. But we launched it five years ago today. Today's our fifth oh, wow. anniversary. Happy Cheers. birthday! Thank you. Amazing. Um, and that was like nine days after the uh, referendum vote. Yes. So after, when the referendum vote happened, I sort of thought that this was a bit of a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because you had a huge constituency of people that were all uh, united about one thing. They were all angry about one thing. Yeah. They had a name, the 48%. That didn't exist the day before, but now everyone knew you were one of the 48%. Yeah. And, uh, and also, I just thought that one of the things that the campaigning had shown, as, as we've talked about, you know, the lack of real aggressive defence of, of why it was good to be in the European Union, stuff like this. I thought it would be good to throw a newspaper out there. Yeah. And did you consider launching it before to actually help? No, not at all, no. No. So, you know, there I am admonishing, you know, the editors of the Daily Mirror for their complacency, but I was just as bad, you know. I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was my role i was at that time working for archant yeah which was the company that um that launched the new european uh as their chief content officer but it was your project right your yeah yeah, yeah. totally totally i mean they would never they I, I, i'd only been there six months so i was still sort of the blue-eyed boy and uh i don't think had i been there a year i don't think i'd have got it off the blocks but people were still Yeah, I hadn't been found out yet, so <laughs> so um, so we put it forward as an idea to the to the boss, a guy called Jeff Henry, and he uh, he said, I you know I can't. It was one of those emails that you sent in the full knowledge that you were never going to have to act on it. But it was a good idea, and it showed sort of initiative, initiative, yeah. but it was yeah. never going to happen. So you could relax. Yeah. And then he phoned back and said, "Let's talk about it um, at the exec meeting on the Tuesday." I forgot completely about about this idea I'd had, and we'd had this very miserable uh, meeting about how it was going to be Brexit was going to be bad for business and advertising and yes. blah blah blah. And at the end of the meeting, Jeff said, sort of stared me in the eye and said, "Has anyone got any positive ideas?" And I went, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, we should launch a new newspaper." And people sort of turned around, and then I said what I said to you about, you know, a lot of people. Uh, all feeling angry, and you know, there, there was an emotional, there was an emotional energy we could tap into, you know. Yeah. But we'd have to do it very quickly. Yeah. And uh, uh, you know, we'd only do it for four weeks. That was my kind of. That was the stroke of genius, if there was one, <laughs> because the chief financial officer was just sitting there. You could see him thinking, "This is going to sink the company." You know? right. Well, Trinity Mirror just, or Reach as they are now, just launched a paper called. Um, What was it called? 24... The Day. Was it called The Day? I think so, something like this. New Day. It was okay. called New Day, and it lasted... It was a bit like Mickey Rourke. I think it lasted about nine and a half weeks. And, <laughs> and they spent, I think, 10 million quid, and it, and it sold nothing. But my yeah. observation on The New Day was, when you looked at it... Great idea, let's go and sit down on that yeah. bench. When yeah. you looked at it, uh, you didn't know whether you were a New Day reader or not. You know, right. It might have been a very good newspaper, or it might not have been, but there was no clear indication that, uh, 
this was your newspaper. Right. Yeah, interesting. Um, uh, but with the New European, there was no doubt. You know, yeah. you were either one of the 48% or you weren't. So Clever. But yeah, so the CFO was kind of thinking this is going to just cost us millions. And then I thought we'll call it pop-up publishing. We'll do it as, an, as a little four-week exercise. Yeah. And then we said something like, you know, after that, every issue will be a referendum from the readers. And, you know, if they want us to carry on, we'll carry on. If not, fine. Yeah. So... From that point of view, it was a fantastic uh, bit of PR for Archons. You know, and I have to come clean, it was always a publishing idea. It wasn't a, uh, an idea born of political angst, you know, yes. or outrage. Yeah, it you, was an, it was an opportunity. It was opportunistic. Yeah. But, yeah. but you believe in it though, right? Well, I mean, it would only have worked if I believed in it. You can't fake that kind of yeah. stuff, I don't think, although people try. But... Um, should we just, let's park here for a second. Yeah. Um, so uh, we launched it nine days later. I thought if you leave it three weeks or four weeks, one, you know, either we'll talk ourselves out of it or the heat of the moment will go yeah. and we'll, we'll lose the, the opportunity. But in the... Um, I'll go on the far side. Okay. In the sort of aftermath of Brexit, it became like a nice little novelty story. So people started to talk about it. Uh, Andrew Neil got us on his politics show. The New York Times sent a reporter uh, to, 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 do, Norwich. to Norwich to do the piece, you know. So Great. There was me and Jeff Henry on the front page of the New York Times business section. And actually on the front page of the New York Times, I can't remember, pop-up paper, wow. defies Brexit, odds or something like this, you know. So, I mean, from that point of view, Archant had never seen anything like it yep. and, and loved it for a long time. And we sold that first issue, we put it out at two quid. And then a month later, because we didn't get the circulation figures back until like the third issue. Yeah. The first issue sold something like 38,000 copies, right? No more. How did you know how many to print? <laughs> well, we printed, I think, 120,000 copies wow, okay. on the basis that we had to give, if we gave every news agent two or three copies, you know, there's 40,000 news agents in the country so if yeah. you want to supply them all that's the kind of zone you're in yeah and since then obviously we've that process has become much more scientific uh, but nevertheless for a newspaper that had no marketing no advertising just word-of-mouth stuff and was just a curiosity to sell nearly 40,000 copies at two pound a copy yeah was just extraordinary right and I remember walking down the embankment and getting the news the circulation, a great guy called Darren McLaughlin at, at Archon, phoning me up and saying, I've just got the figures in. Starts with a three, and I thought it was like 3,000. You know. <laughs> I said 38,000 copies, and I just leapt up in the, uh, on the embankment. And I think that was the single most happy moment of my career. Yeah. Because my big terror really had been that it would be shit, you know, that I wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, I'd spent a long time on the mirror. I had a great contacts book. I knew all about tabloid design and projection. I knew I could, I knew I could make it look good, but that's not what people really look at. You know, what they remember is, was the great content in there, was somebody saying something really interesting. And I remember the day before we went to press, I just didn't feel we had anything that the rest of Fleet Street would look at. Because I was, I mean, if I'm being utterly honest, I was more worried about what people would think about me than what they'd think about Archie, you know? Yeah. Because if you, if you screwed that up, people would just think, well, 
well, he's in local newspapers for a reason, isn't he? You know? <laughs> Not that local newspapers are anything to be, you know, feel remotely um, bothered about because they're a huge challenge. Um, but it's nevertheless, there's a lot of snobbery in Fleet Street, and, yeah. and people love to point to people and say, oh, look, he's fucked up. You know, they love that in Fleet Street. They love that. It's a yeah. real tall poppy. Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Abs- well, yeah. Well, Apparently so. We are. Yeah. Well, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, of course we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I find it hard to talk for more than three or four <laughs> minutes without swearing. So, um, so that was, you know, that was amazing. And then it became a thing that eventually the archment management, I think, got bored of it. Got bo- certainly got bored of the novelty of it. But it was bringing in money. Yeah. Oh yeah, it, was, it never lost a penny in its in its yeah. existence. You know, yeah. it's all, but it was never make it was never going to make a million quid with right. Archant, right? Because they never had the money to put behind it. I've always thought it was the absolutely the perfect company to launch it, because, you know, I only had to get one guy to say yes. We had a distribution network. We had designers. Yes. We could very quickly spin it out. You know, and to, and to get a national newspaper branded, full of 48 pages. It was a Berliner size. It was the Gar- like the old Guardian press. Because again, I am an arrogant twat and I get hung up on things. And it was, I was determined, you know, we had our own presses that could have printed it tabloid for much less, but right. that wasn't good enough for me. I wanted it to be Berliner, you know. But anyway, so um, the circulation kind of fell down and down and down <laughs> until it reached a point where we were selling something like 12, 13,000 copies. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, it's run out of steam. And then the challenge was, you know, how do we elegantly close it without, it's, without losing face and yeah. still being a success? And yeah. then miraculously, it started picking up again to the point where it was selling around 20,000 copies. Was there an event that triggered no, that? No, I think it was people went, I think people just had a summer, around September time, 2016, people think, I think people just got despairing about the whole thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and the last thing they wanted to do was to, have this reminder every week that the world had gone to shit. And then I think hope crept back back in as the autumn came and people started to buy it. Maybe the paper got better. Uh, it's hard. To, it's very hard to distance yourself. Some weeks I do papers and I think the cover's the best thing since the Sistine Chapel. You know, I think it's just like art. Yeah. And then two days later I look at it and I just, what were you thinking? It's just <laughs> shit. Well, it's just enough. shit. So it's very hard to tell whether something's good or bad. But anyway, the, the readers know, and uh, and circulation came back. We started to take on subscribers because we never had a subscription strategy because we never thought we were going to last. Yeah. We didn't have a website, so we built a website. So all, we sort of did things backwards. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then it sort of it plateaued, and it and it was taking in revenues of about one and a half million a year. Uh, had very very small cost base so what was, was the split advertising versus oh no nothing all reader next to the, honestly i've got more change in my pocket than we've taken in advertising wow. than the new european because we were the problem was we were always too small for agencies to be interested in right. and we were seen as a bit too spiky uh it was a bit of an effort to sell to somebody why you'd want to take the risk of going on this front page where they might one week have Donald Trump on the cover with a barcode over his lip like a Hitler moustache and saying, <laughs> is he a fascist, you know? So why would you bother to, to reach 20,000 people that you could reach in the Observer yeah. for, you know, for, yeah. the le- for the same amount of money? So we never had any advertising, but that became a strength in a way. And I think it is a strength, is that I haven't got an advertising team, so I don't have any of that cost base. Mm. 
people really care. Now and again, people phone in and say, can I place an ad? And, you know, that's great. But really, fundamentally, the entire business is, is predicated on, on reader revenue, subscription or retail. And, uh, and I, my belief is, is that if, if you attach yourself to a product like the New European and it resonates with you, and it, and it makes you feel, it enhances your sense of community, then paying, paying three quid for it a week is not really an issue. We've yeah. just paid three quid for two not terrible coffees. Yes. But the idea, you know, three quid for a newspaper seems horrifically expensive to yeah. some people. Yeah. And I, I think the biggest mistake we made when we launched was only charging two quid. I wish we'd charged a fiver now. Because mm. I, I don't, I honestly don't believe we'd have sold any less. Yeah. I think people would have still bought it. Our readers are all quite wealthy. Well, I say all, that's terribly generalizing. That's not, I'm sure there are plenty of readers who it is a, a consideration, but I don't think for most of them it's a consideration. Yeah. It's almost certainly a second purchase for all of them. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it's not the point. You know, the point is, is that it feels like it's a, a community and it's always been very, I've always been very keen that um, it, it, to try and convey the message that the readers were part of something as well, you know, and, and that is, the experience of reading the New European was something that it would fall through your letterbox and it would remind you that the flame was still alive, you know, alight. There was, it was, we were still there yeah. and you are not alone. Yes. And, yeah. and, uh, and people, I think, value that kind of thing. Was there ever or is there a risk that it was more pamphlet than newspaper? Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, that, it didn't seem to be a risk. It seems to be like a, an opportunity. Okay. I mean, if you, if you think about um, um, the American Civil War, uh, the, the, that was the rise, really, of pamphleteering, the French Revolution, the American Civil War, mm -hmm. people coming out and getting these... Uh, powerful political messages out to a mass market via the printing press. Yep. And, you know, if you look at the Philadelphia papers in, in America where people are, you know, uh, Hamilton as well, you know, right, Hamilton was a newspaper editor as well. He launched the New York Post um, as a vehicle. As to, well as a hip hop artist. As well as, as, well as a great singer <laughs> and dancer. He, but he, um, Alexander Hamilton launched the New York Post to tell people about, you know, why the uh, Republic of, of the United States was, was an ideal that should be, was worth fighting for. The Economist was launched to fight the Corn Laws. Yeah. You know, that was a single issue newspaper. And that's what I say to people, say, oh, well, what, does, what does the New European do now that Brexit's over? Like Brexit's ever <laughs> over, you know. I say, well, you know, the Economist has done pretty well since the yeah. Corn Laws is over, mate. So I think the idea that you start with the energy of an issue and that, but you can carry that through because it becomes your, your beliefs, you know, your, your values are grounded in that, that event. But that event itself is only a reflection of a, a broader value set. Yeah. You know, and I think the mistake a lot of people made was that Brexit was some anomaly, you know, or, or, or like an event in isolation. But it wasn't at all. You know, Brexit was the culmination of 20 years of lots of deep-rooted feelings and conflict and tension and ideas that were, were are incompatible so I think for a newspaper to try to straddle those uh, incompatible 
values is a mistake. And I don't think a newspaper should be scared of saying, this is what we think, and as a consequence of that, this is what we think about this specific thing. Yeah. And people call it partisanship or, or you know, um, uh, kind of uh, blinkered to a broader argument. I, I never believe that it's a newspaper's job to present breadth. I think it's a newspaper's job to present an argument it believes in yeah. and, uh, and to do it to, as powerfully as it can. And I think, you know, whatever people think about Paul Dacre, and I, you know, I'll be right at the front of the queue of people who think he's an absolute you know, cancer on UK media, whatever you think about him, he took that kind of sense of what media can be and, and made it this machine that was his Daily Mail which I'm, you know, I am sure was as responsible as anything for, for the Brexit vote getting through, you know. So I've, I've never felt that the need to apologise for the fact that we are fiercely of the belief that we're better being at the table. Yeah. But that is, that's one view on one issue, and that's born of a, of a view that I prefer to be engaged with the world rather than sort of turn my back on it, you know. I, I loved travelling when I was a kid, you know, I loved the sense of being a European, of being able to just drive around, you know, visit these places. Even the idea that one day you might be able to work in Paris or Madrid or something mm. like this, it was an amazing thing. Yeah. I mean, the idea I that, that that's not there now, but I think it's awful. I know, it's awful. I mean, when I was 25, I literally hopped on a motorbike, rode down to the south of France right. and lived there for eight years. Well, as mate, a French resident, being paid in France, amazing. And paying French taxes, and how yeah. wonderful is that? It was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, and that—that that, I that think our kids can't do that. Well, they—they they can't do it now. Well, I mean, maybe one day they'll be able to again. But I think our kids will still be able to find a way to enjoy Europe, you yeah. know, and to feel European. But you know, one of the things people keep saying to us is. Don't you realise we're still part of Europe, mate? You know, it's just the European Union. But the European Union, as flawed as it is, and 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 as in need of like radical reform as it as it is, you know. Don't get me wrong, I am not a fanboy for the European Union. I think mm. their attitude towards Britain and the referendum was every bit as bad as Paul Dacre's. You know, they gave Dacre the fuel to stick in the engine, you know. I mean they really yeah. They were so naive about how British people think. But nevertheless, I think the European Union as, a, as an idea that we can be in harmony and use our collective uh, economic power to our advantage, especially in, a, in an age where you know, we're facing new economic blocks that are going to make us dwarf, dwarf Britain uh, in the near future, like China, for instance, yeah. you know, India, Brazil, you know. These, um, these, these economies are going to really dwarf us and, and, and we are so vulnerable now that we are on our own. I remember, do you remember when um, Trump got elected and Theresa May rushed over there to, mm-hmm. to sort of supplicate herself at the court of Donald Trump? Yeah. That, that to me symbolised everything that the new European gave us the power not to, to have to do. You know, we didn't have to go and bend the knee to Donald Trump. Yeah because we were part of the biggest economic block in the, in the world. And, and now, this, this sentimental idea that we're going to be able to go out there, tally forth, you know, and, and write these new amazing trade deals with, with people 
I, I, I think it's a nonsense. And I think even if it was true, it doesn't make sense against what you had before. You know, even if that's true, <clears throat> what you had before was better. Yeah. So how do you... I mean, you touched on it before, but I'm interested to know, how do you maintain people's interest now? You know, when, what, are, what are people fighting for when they read the New European? Well, I think, well, I think people want to be... Let me put it in a negative. People don't want to be bored. You know, the worst thing you can do is bore people mm. about anything, even if it's something they're passionate about, you know, yeah. as we've just been doing for the last five minutes. <laughs> you know, it is a killer. So you have to be a bit adventurous and pick up different topics, and we've, we've done that. And, in fact, the other week, we did something which was more like history today than it was like the New European. It was, a, it was the 80th anniversary of uh, Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's assault on Russia. And Jonathan Dimbleby had written this great book about Barbarossa, which mm. I'd heard on a, on a kind of audio book. I thought this was terrific, you know, I started getting into the detail of it and then went into the picture archives and found these amazing photographs that have rarely been published before, you know, of the people on the front, you know, a very human thing. And so we, we splashed on that, um, a, you know, into the advance into the abyss or something like this. And I believe it's sold very well because it looks interesting, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's what I love about other publications is the slight randomness to them, you know, like the New York Review of Books or the London Review of Books or... The Economist, or you know, you never quite know what you're going to get because uh, it's feature-led rather than breaking news. Yeah, though. yes. So th that to me is something that, as a as an old tabloid guy, I had to really discipline myself not to care whether something had a hook. You know, and I, I remember. Well, sometimes the hook is I've just found out about it. You know, <laughs> we went to Budapest for a weekend. And again, you know, maybe this is my obsession with the Nazis, you know, but we read about the battle for Budapest, you know, we came back and did a big eight-page spread on that. And it was, right. it was fabulous. It was amazing. And most people don't know anything about the battle of Budapest, but it was an extraordinary thing. And then you've got, you know, millions of people going to Budapest on long weekends and suddenly they're interested. And, and there's a resonance there, you know. Mm. So that, that hook is the fact that I was doing what a lot of my readers are doing, which is going to Budapest for a long weekend, discovering this thing about the Battle of Budapest, being interested in history, which most of us are, and then deciding to, to throw out eight pages of something about something that was happening that week and do this instead. And, and it, the paper was all the better for it. You know. So serendipity, finding something, just finding something that was a bit unexpected, but enjoying it. I think that's really valuable yeah. for, for maintaining a subscription. Now, I think that's, you can sell a front page on the newsstand with a good cover, which hopefully we do, but to get a subscriber coming back every quarter and renewing time after time, I think they've got to get a sense that there's always something in there that I yeah. enjoy. Yeah, yeah. But then how do you keep, I mean, are you traveling a lot? Are you constantly looking around you every time you travel for the next story? Well, no, because, well, not because of, because of it's COVID. It's hard now. Yeah, but also they've got this thing called the internet, which, you know, you can, me you can mentally travel, you know, but over you were time in Budapest, and space. You were actually physically in Budapest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Right. But stuff still happens, you know, that yeah. triggers stuff. What I am good at is, is recognizing that something's interesting and can be interesting to other people. That's what I'm good at. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you know, uh, I remember being a features editor on the Daily Mirror and quite often seeing all the feature writers huddled in the morning talking about something and then they'd send in their ideas for that day and they were all dross, you know. 
and you get them together and you say, what was it, you, what were you all talking about? Right. And they said, have you seen that bloody advert, ad billboard outside the office? It's hilarious, you know. And you said, well, who did it? What's it about? You know, what, let's talk about that. Yeah. Or did you see this thing on TV last night? It's hilarious. Let's do that. Yeah. If you're talking about it, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. So my loathing is, is J school, journalism school, you know, or media degrees or whatever they're called. Partly because I'm bitter and chippy because I never got to go on one. But mainly because they teach people that something is news and, and therefore worthy of attention and something is not. And right. even if you're interested in that thing over there, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the bill. It's not a story. Yes. And quite often that's because you're being taught by a news editor who'd been taught by a news editor. And, and these kind of rules of, of what qualifies as journalism yeah. have been handed down over, you know, generations. And I just think it's so much bullshit. I really do. I think if you're interested in something and it's grabbed your attention, you're excited about it, enough to talk to somebody else about it, why the hell wouldn't you put it in your newspaper? Mm. Because you'll be different, you'll be surprising. Uh, and, you know, to be different and surprising in a newspaper, especially in a, in, a, in a landscape as competitive as the UK's, where you go into a newsagent, I know these are very old-fashioned concepts now, but people go into a newsagent and choose a newspaper or look at newspapers. Yes. And you've got 12 of them laid out, and they're all saying the same thing. Yeah. Right, this is the, we're talking the morning after England beat... Um, <laughs> bloody hell, I'm so hungover, I can't remember who <laughs> beat Denmark, right? And, uh, and on about eight of the ten available national newspapers, there's a picture of Harry Kane and the headline, finally, yeah. right? Yeah. And you just kind of think, really? Did you not guess that every other editor in the country was thinking, finally, you know, we've got into the final and would slap Harry Kane all over yeah. it? What's well, your you point? Think, but you've got the luxury of not having to cover mm. everything because you're not a paper of record. No, and not at all, no. You can no. ignore all of that stuff. Yeah, and we do and quite frequently. Interesting stuff, and in fact, I've, I, you know, I've been increasingly trying to wean wean the new European guys off the idea that we've got to be obsessed with domestic politics, you know, like the infighting in the Labour Party and Keir St is Keir Starmer the right man or is he not the right man and all of this business and what that by-election means. Let them do that. Let the Telegraph and the yeah. Guardian, the Mail, let them all do it and the Owen Joneses on Twitter and all of this. Let them. There's enough of that. I'd much sooner talk about getting Jonathan Dimbleby to describe what it was like to go and face you know, the Nazis at Stalingrad yeah. 80 years ago. Yeah. That's, that's astonishing. Yeah. It's funny, I don't think I've done any of these podcasts without mentioning Tortoise, but here we go again. But they have a similar <laughs> luxury, I think, is that, you know, their, their output touches on what's going on, but actually most of their stories are completely aside yeah. from what everybody else is covering, and it's so much yeah. more interesting because well, of it. Yeah. I mean, I really, I really admire everything they're trying to do you know i think um i think there, there's a danger that slow news can sometimes remind you what's good about fast news you know there is a danger meaning that, what so if you apply the slow news principle to everything yeah as i think they probably did at the beginning a bit too much so they would say right this is the hot issue of the day we're now going to cover it in such depth right but sometimes sometimes <coughs> that's not what people want and i think the I think the more you veer off the beaten track and get, you know, they've got such talent. 
you know, Matt Dancona, I think, is mm -hmm. just one of the best journalists in the country, you know. And for him to be able to sit down and to do an amazing podcast or an amazing long-form piece of journalism about something that he thinks is deeply interesting yes. is a gift, I think, to, to yeah. its subscribers. Because it's not just Matt Dancona's version of what Matthew Paris was writing about in The Times okay. or, yeah. or uh, you know, um, and it, you know, so-and-so was writing in The Guardian or whatever. You know, th this idea that we've got to have our version of that story today. But I think, that's, I think that was always the point of Tortoise. It wasn't their own take on the story of the day. It was always, actually, what, what, what's the yeah. story that no one's talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've really focused on that for yeah. the last couple of years. I think it's well. I, I mean, I sat cool. down with with James Harding and talked about you know he's such a generous guy with with his ideas. You know, yeah. almost to a fault. I would never be as forthcoming as as he is yeah. because you, I sit there and <laughs> I nick them all. And one of the ideas I'm I'm nicking because it's such a great idea is this idea that you focus on you know a number of 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 areas. But you, one of them, that, and this is the one that stuck out to me, was it, one of his topics of focus was how to live to be 100 or something like this. You know, The 100-year life. The 100-year yeah, right. life. Yeah. And I just thought how astute that way of thinking is mm -hmm. because that is something, it's so well-defined and it's something everybody wants, if not for themselves, for their kids. You know, it's so engrossing and, and yet it's so broad as well. Well, exactly. It's as, it's as much about what's the impact of having a population that lives to 100 as it, it is, how do I get to exactly. live to 100? Exactly. It's, yeah. it's so... And also, I mean, in terms of the, the, the elements that have a consequence on that topic, it's, it's everything. Yes. It's yeah. everything. Yeah. But to be able to put it into that phrase... Yeah is a bit like, I think, what we did well with, with the phrase, the new European. You know, and as I've increasingly lived with that title, I think the reason it's a good title is not because it's, it sort of sits well on top of a newspaper, it's because it encapsulates, I think, a feeling people have that they are now new Europeans. Mm. And, you know, Tortoise, I think, um, I'm fascinated about their move to increasing amounts of audio you know yes. that that is another area i think is is very on the money because personally i spend so much time now listening to stuff like this yeah you know yeah i mean some of it Probably to send me this. to sleep <laughs> which which i will certainly save this one for <laughs> but um but i think audio now is becoming a format that um will will rival you know the reading experience for how we take on yeah. information it's interesting. So the, the, the big chat at the moment uh, in Tortoise, without, I guess without giving the game away, is you know, how do you leverage the power of the distribution of all of these audio platforms? That's the nice thing yeah. about audio, right? Yeah. I mean, people like, well, Acast as a kind of meta distribution platform and then Spotify and Apple yeah, and so yeah, on. Yeah. You know, providing these platforms and these audiences yeah. for, for your audio that, that yeah. suddenly give you this huge... Which access. is incredible, isn't it? When you think about it. Yeah, it is, yeah. and it's different to the you know it's different to how Google works with copy in yeah. a way and search. Yeah. It's a whole kind of different science. Yeah. As how you get the audio out there, and they you know they did a deal with Spotify around I think it's called Drive Time or something. It's, right. it's Spotify's playlist. Okay. For the commute and Tortoise is the sense maker is a part of that. Fantastic. Now. So they're getting huge audience. Off I can the back imagine. Of that. I can imagine. And, that, and when you think about the challenges of, of new entrants to the market, say, 20 years ago, like if you wanted to distribute a newspaper, a new newspaper, you had to, you had to be in the position I was with, yeah. with Archant. You had to have a distribution network. You had yeah. to have 
designers and marketeers and uh, access to a print site and you know all of those things needed to be in place. Yeah. Uh, and they were they were discreet. They were exclusive to you know you had to you couldn't just rock up and say here's this thing stick it in with the rest of it on the conveyor belt. But mm. now you can. Yeah. And so we're getting to a point now where besides besides the smarts of the business you know obviously tortoise had to do a deal to get onto that slot so you need to be smart enough to know how that works yeah but ultimately the thing that's defining success and failure now is just the quality of the content yeah which uh i think is a wonderful 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 thing i listened to a podcast called um philosophize this which is a guy um whose name escapes you now he's a really really great um I don't know what he is, philosopher, professor, or something like this, but he does a very engaging breakdown of, of different areas of, and proponents of modern philosophy. Okay. Actually, not well, the philosophy going back all the way yeah, yeah. to the Greeks. And, Do uh, you know who it is? Well, I can't, I can't remember his name, uh, but I support him on Patreon. We'll look it up. Yeah, uh, but it's brilliant. And I think it's number seven or eight in the kind of arts and culture podcasts these days. And he's just an individual putting this out when he wants to, doesn't put it out every week in fact you know sometimes months go by without anything and the first i know about it is when my bank tells me that i've just paid him ten dollars you know um for a new episode and that's how he works and he puts it out and i've been in touch with him and said have you ever thought about doing a tie-up he's not interested you know he says no i like i like narrow cast i don't want broadcast i like narrow cast and i think that's such a great attitude you know yeah I always remember, I, I love Stuart Lee, right, who lives around here, and see him from time to time. Very cool guy. And he's such a, he's such a nice guy when people meet him, because you expect him to be, I mean, if you know Stuart Lee as a comedian, he's like brutal. Yes. But he's yes. absolutely the total opposite of that in real life, right? right. But um, in, his, in his show, when he insults people, and he's talking, he does this shtick about, you know, oh, they don't get it, this, don't come again, what are you here for, and all of this. And he says, I call it refining the audience. <laughs> and I think that, most people think about it completely the opposite. They think about expanding the audience yeah, at yeah. whatever cost, yeah. even if it means diluting what you are good at doing or the whole point of who you are. Yeah. You'll dilute it to bring more people in. And I think, screw that. You know, life's too short. Refine, refine, refine yeah. until, until it's just people who think exactly like you. <laughs> Is that your philosophy for the new European? No, my philosophy for the new <laughs> Small European. Small is beautiful. Well, my, well, I've always edited it for myself. That's what I've always told people. Yeah. Especially when, you know, I work with some people who I've worked with for a long time. Great guy called Steve Anglesey, who has been with me, you know, together. We've been doing all sorts of stuff for nearly 20 years now, right? Going back from the mirror. And Steve uh, is, is, Steve and I are, a double act in the sense that I am the hothead mad one and Steve is the guy who will filter the crap out and and say you know this is good but occasionally I have to Steve will say to me um, well this is very popular on Twitter the, you know or this is this has been doing very well online yeah you know this is what they want and you know for better or worse I say to him I couldn't give a toss what they want this is what I want and you know <clears throat> It's and do you always win that argument, or do you? Well, yeah, of course <laughs> okay. I do. Yeah. And are you on Twitter? Are you vocal? Oh God, don't go down. I used to be. I used to be, and then I made a very bad joke one day about uh, about Nigel Farage. He was doing a 
he was doing a, an audience, right, with Nigel Farage, and there was a photo of the audience. Uh -oh. And they were, there was about 300 people. They were all old and they were all white and they all, it just looked, and we, and you know, what I'm about to confess to is, I'm not trying to mitigate it in any way. It was a horrible thing to say. Yeah. And I paid the price. Uh, but I said, behold a, an actual Nigel Farage um, audience, you know, marvel at the diversity uh, and bring a mop with you to wipe up the piss afterwards. Oh right. God. Okay. Oh now, God. Brilliant. it was terrible. <laughs> so I got a bunch of, I got, I, I sort of tweeted it and I was knackered and I fell asleep, right? It was like at eight o'clock at night and I fell asleep and I had to get up early to drive to Norwich the next day. So I was up at half five, didn't look at my phone, got to Norwich at about eight o'clock in the morning and picked my phone up and it was a, it had gone berserk. I bet. And the strange thing was when I got really worried, there was loads of direct messages to me on Twitter from loads of people, some of whom I might name one day, right, who privately said, that is hilarious, that tweet. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. And then later on, when it became quite clear that the mood of the nation was that it was not hilarious, and that I needed to be defenestrated yeah. and castrated and exposed as the worst of the worst. Some of these same people who'd been very supportive then publicly said, oh, this is an outrage, you know. And all right. Anyway, so Nadia, my wife was like, you know, right, that's it, I want to divorce you. You know, it was like, it was terrible. <laughs> I was gonna lose my job. Supportive as ever then. Oh, I was gonna lose my job. Um, it, was, it was horrific. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being, facetious when I say it was one of the lowest moments of my life Wow! and it was all over this stupid tweet right which meant nothing it was just a, it was either a good joke or a bad joke depending on what your flavor was my you know I, I'm not a comedian so a comedian could have said it and everyone oh, Frankie Boyle look making rape jokes isn't that funny oh, you know no problem Matt Kelly the editor of the New European my mistake was being stupid enough to not realise that people would take something like that and use it as a stick to beat yes. the entire Remain movement, which was terrible. Dan Hodges in the Mail on Sunday wrote this sanctimonious piece about, the, the, this is what typifies the reason Remain left this lost, this idiot, you know, look at what he says, the contempt for people he had. And I've never met this tosser in my life, right? But here he was holding forth about the, the fact that I was in basically an evil character. Yeah. And, and I just thought, after, after about a nanosecond's reflection, I thought, Nadia, my wife, has been right all along when she said, only idiots tweet, because there's no upside to it. Unless you've got seven million followers like Piers, yeah. Piers Morgan, and so you can use it to market anything, mm -hmm. you know, and it becomes your, your, your personal community. If you've got 20,000 followers like Matt Kelly did, and you say something that really offends a load of people, yeah. nearly costs you your job and sends you into a, an absolute mental health spiral. Yeah. It, it's hard to kind of justify the, the upsides. Yeah. Yeah. They don't exist. Well, I guess it's just so polarizing, isn't it? So. Yeah, but you can, uh, you know, it's on a personal level. I, so I've, I kind of went to ground after that and I, I went off social media completely. And I realized I must have been spending about three hours a day on various social media platforms because suddenly I had huge amounts of time and I've literally written a 120,000 word novel in the time that it was, There you, go. you know, so I, I would heart, I know it feels like it's quite hard to, and you don't have to become a national joke and humiliate yourself 
nationally to get to this point of realisation. But I would ask people to question the value of them tweeting and does the world really need to get your hot take on, on everything that's just yeah. happened? Yeah. So that was part one. Please do stick around for the next part when Matt gets into the nitty gritty of building a brand new news media business from scratch. And as always, if you have any suggestions on who you'd like me to talk to, or if you've got any feedback at all, please just give me a shout. I'd love to hear from you.